Let's pray. Father, we trust you. We trust your word. We trust your work. We trust your spirit. Your word says if we commit our ways to you and trust you, you will act. We trust that you will act. Pray that Jesus Christ be exalted, that your glory would be magnified, and that we would be satisfied in you through Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, I don't know about you guys, I love being a parent. I love having children. I love my kids. There are particular things about my kids that I love. One of the things I love about my kids is that they tell me, Dad, don't talk about us from the pulpit. (laughs) And I do it anyways. (laughs) But one of the things that I love is that my youngest child is still young enough Dante, don't tell your brother I said this. Your, my youngest child is still young enough to go to school and make artwork at school and bring it home. And that artwork is outright terrible. <laughs> and, but I still get to tell him, oh, son, that looks so amazing. Right? We do that to our kids. Now, here's the thing. I'm not lying to him when I say that, okay? I know it sounds deceptive. I'm not lying to him. He's eight years old. That's good for an eight-year-old, and I want to encourage him, so I tell him it's great. Now, like, if he were 28 and making stuff like that, I would be a little more honest with him and tell him to give up on the art, career, dream, job, and get a real job, but he's eight, so it's great. But when our children make things, I want you to think about this. Who do, what do we praise? Do we praise the artwork or do we praise the child? We praise the artist. We don't praise the art. We praise the artist. We, we recognize the art. We look at the beauty of the art. And because of the beauty of the art, we praise the artist. When I look at my eight-year-old's drawing and it's not a good drawing, I think to myself, but he created it. This came from his own hand and his own creative mind, and I should encourage him and praise him for the work that he's done. And there's plenty of joy to be found in that artwork. So we give praise to the creator instead of the creation. They get credit for the creation because without them, the creation would not exist. The beauty of the creation is a reflection of the beauty that the creator has considered or thought of or beheld and then made. It is, and I say all this about our children and creating things and art, because it is naturally installed in our very being that we are to give praise to the creator over the creation. This is the sin that Romans 1 hits on really hard, is that the problem in humanity, the problem with our sinful nature, is that we tend to move towards worshiping creation instead of the creator. And worshiping the creation instead of the creator is a very clear indication that we are not saved and or we are not worshiping the right thing. So this truth that we are 
that we have this naturally installed inclination in all of us to worship the creator instead of the creation, to worship the artist instead of the art. We are installed with that perspective, that desire, that need, because the entire purpose of your existence is that you would worship your creator. What we find in Colossians 1.16 is, listen to this, an elementary truth. I'm going to tell you that Jesus created all things. And I'm sure none of you are going to go, really? I didn't know that. Okay, this is an elementary truth. God created all things and Jesus himself created all things. But what we may let slip under our radar, radar is that the reason for this truth the reason this truth is in this particular text is, that, is so that we would give praise to the Creator and do one particular thing. Worship Him. Knowing that He created all things leads us to some sort of rationale. There has to be something that is the most rational response to understanding Jesus as Creator. And what Paul will show us is that the only rational response to discovering Jesus as creator is that we would worship him. So we're in verse 16. Paul says, For by him, that's Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So just off the bat, if any of us have any understanding of God and we think to ourselves, I know that God created all things, right? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we just kind of think of God as like, you know, this spirit in the spiritual realm who's just like exists and everything existed and we kind of tend to think that it's the Father who created all things. But what we find in Scripture is that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all creating. If you go to Genesis 1, you don't have to go there if you want. I'm going to read it. We find God the Father creating. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That word God is Elohim. It's a reference to the Father. He's called Elohim in the first chapter because he's this sovereign God over all things. Then later, the, uh, Moses changes God's name to Yahweh, this personal, relatable, tangible, loving God. But here he's Elohim. So God the Father is creating. Genesis 1 verse 2, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So there's the Holy Spirit at work. And then we have here in Colossians 1.16 a very, very clear statement for by him, Jesus, specifically Jesus, because that's what Paul says back in verse uh, 13. He says, of his beloved son, and then verses 14 and on are about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And here he says, for by Jesus, all things were created. We find that in John chapter 1, 2. So Paul has two goals here in declaring Jesus as creator. Doctrine and worship. His doctrinal goal, his theological goal, is to teach the church the truth about the nature of Jesus. And this is important because the Colossians and many churches in the first century were facing a heresy about the nature of Jesus. Today we still face that heresy. 325 years, well actually 225 years after this, 
This heresy about the deity of Jesus comes to the surface again, and I talked about this last week, in the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, where everyone's arguing about what Jesus is, who he's like, what his nature is like, is he God, is he eternal, is he fully man, is he fully God? So, and since then, there's still plenty of theologians today and churches today that preach that Jesus, or even that God himself, is not really in control of things that he's not supreme, he's not sovereign, that he doesn't know the future, that he's just kind of powerful. He's like a superhero. He's like a superman with a little more power than Superman. Bruce Ware wrote a book about this kind of false doctrine, and the title of his book is Their God is Too Small. I love that title. It's a great description of not understanding the full deity of Christ. So there's these Gnostics. It's a, it's a heretical, false religion within the, in the first century. These Gnostics were teaching a lot of false things about Jesus, particularly that he was some emanation that came from God, and he's just kind of a gateway to God, that he is, himself is not God. In fact, what it does is it casts Jesus as lower than the angels, which we'll get to in a second. And so with, the, with this Gnosticism, Jesus was portrayed in the first century as neither God nor eternal, because only God is eternal. So Jesus is therefore not eternal. If he's not eternal, then he can't create. So for Paul to claim that Jesus is creator of all things, claims his full deity and therefore his eternal nature. So Paul's combating the heresy of the day. That's, that's the doctrinal desire he has there. Now for us, Grace Church here in Osceola, I assume that's not nearly as big of a concept that we have to combat. I, would, I don't think it would be too foolish of me to assume that everyone in this room believes that Jesus is fully God. Okay, And so I don't feel like we need to dive down that path, but we do need to understand that that's the context of this text. But Paul has a more important goal, and now this goal really hits home with us. Because this is all about you and your life and your relationship to God and how you behave and how you think and how you praise God and how you sing and how you give. This has to do with how you love your wife or your husband. This has to do with what school you send your kids to, how you talk to them on a Tuesday afternoon, how you, what decisions you make for your family, how you spend your money, what job you take, what car you drive. Your priorities in life are all determined by this point. Paul's primary goal here is our worship. And proper worship, which shows up in all the ways I just described, proper worship shows up in your bank account, it shows up in the vehicles that you have, it shows up in the way you treat other people, your relationships, your job, how well you do your job, your attitude, your perspective, everything, everything reveals your heart of worship. And what Paul wants to get us to, what God wants to get you to, is a place where your worship is right. And when I say right, I mean genuine, heartfelt joy that overflows into praise, and that praise, as it overflows, pours out of your mouth and out of your pores in worship. And that worship looks very diverse. So my agenda, ultimately, is to teach you 
why we should worship him and then how we should worship him. So that's what we're going to do today. I'm going to tell you why you should worship him, which Paul shows us in this verse. And then I want to tell you how, because that's the real catch, right? I am a why guy. Everything for me is why. If you tell me how to do something, I'm going to go, I'm not going to do anything. I don't care how it's supposed to be done until I understand why. That's my perspective. My wife, total opposite. She is all about the how. I could say, you know what we should do? And I'll start saying what we should do. And she'll go do it. I'll go, whoa, you don't even know why we're doing it. She's like, it doesn't matter. It needs to get done, right? <laughs> so that's, and I understand there's different people here. Some of you are the why people. Some of you are the how people. Maybe you're one of those rare people who are both. A little healthier than the rest of us. But ultimately, I want to show you that why and then the how. Ultimately, our worship of God is enhanced the better we understand him. And that's what Paul's giving us, a better understanding of Jesus. So to Paul and to the Colossians, this is more than just a theological exercise in the nature of Jesus. This doctrine of Jesus as creator is foundational to the very nature of who he is as eternal God, and that impacts our worship significantly. And as creator, Jesus did not just create some things. He created, verse 16, all things. So there is... Nothing in all of creation that exists apart from Jesus' creative work. If he did not create it, it doesn't exist. If it exists, he created it. So this word all is very important because there's a lot of times in, te- in, in Scripture where, well, in every time in Scripture, we need to understand a text in its specific context. Sometimes the word all is used, and it doesn't mean all as in everybody in the world. I'll give you an example. If I'm at home, I've used this example all the time. I think it's a great example. If I'm at home and uh, on Christmas Eve and we're going to go look at Christmas lights before we come back home and open presents, and I say to the four other members of my family, are you all ready to leave? When I use the word all, am I talking to everyone in the universe? No, because you all wouldn't fit in my car. Instead, I'm talking to the, the context of that situation is very clear. I'm talking to the four other people in my house. That's the all. I don't mean all as in everybody in the world. So context determines who fits in the word all. All is not always fully encompassing everybody. But in this particular text, all means everything, everywhere, all over. From the furthest furthest point in the universe, if there is an end to it at all, to every tiny molecule in your body, from the smallest to the greatest, from the shortest to the longest, every breadth and width and height and length, he has created everything. John 1-2 says, all things were created through him. And if you're not sure what he means by all, he goes and says, and without him was not anything made that was made. I'm sorry, was, yeah, not anything made that was made. It is It is impossible to count all the number of things that are living. Okay, so I'm going to talk about living things. I'm not even going to talk about the number of, say, molecules or the number of products that are not living. A two-by-four piece of wood, how many two-by-fours are there in the world? I don't know, billions upon billions, 
right? Could we count them all? How many pieces of drywall? How many fragments of carpet? I mean, how many, you know, pieces, how many molecules of metal? How many doors are in the world? And I mean, like, we could count everything, and it would just get to the point where it's ridiculous that we're counting. So I'm going to put all the non-living things to the side and just talk about living things and still show you how incredible his creation is. It's, it's really impossible to count the number of living things on earth. So, so what science does is they measure the total of all living things in what they call biomass, which is just a smart-sounding way of saying weight, okay? So the total weight of all living things on earth is 75 billion tons. Okay, none of you gasped. So to give you an idea how much weight that is, because I didn't gasp either until I started doing some math. To give you an idea how much that is, 75 billion tons. A blue whale weighs 100 tons. It's the biggest creature on earth. So to give you an idea how small 100 tons is, one blue whale, compared to 75 billion tons. I don't think we know how big a billion is, first of all. A billion tons, 75 billion tons. I'm sure that you've heard you at least, you know, maybe heard of or know of how big the sun is compared to the earth, right? We, that's a, a, a comparison that we often use to kind of de- describe how awesome God is in his creation. The sun is this much bigger than the earth. You could fit this many earths into the sun and, you know, the earth is nothing compared to the sun in size and certainly in weight. So the weight of the earth needs to be multiplied 333,000 times to match the weight of the sun. That's the difference between the earth and the sun. The weight of a whale needs to be multiplied 750 million times to match the total weight of all living things on earth. The difference between the largest animal on earth and the weight of all living things on earth is astronomically bigger than the difference between the earth and the sun. Just to give you an idea of how many living things there are on earth, there are 800,000 cataloged insects on earth. Let's just assume that at least 200,000 have gone extinct, which is not unreasonable at all. Jesus created a million insects. And some of them are so ugly and disgusting and weird. And they all have their own unique purpose and they all have their own, they all find their own little place in the food chain and they all, you know, they all function differently. And I think about things like the dung beetle and I'm like, why? (laughs) Why, God? And he's like, because someone's got to take care of the dung. (laughs) So if you just, I say all this just to, to give us an idea of, that, that we can kind of gloss over the incredible feat that is creation. That only a divine mind could produce such a large scale of living thing with different purses and pur- purposes and categorized differently in different ways and all finding their own unique purpose in the food chain to ultimately serve, in the end, us, humans, at the top of the food chain. He does it for us. Because you might think that I was about to say he does it for his own glory. Oh, he does. But he gets his glory and us being satisfied in him. So that is what we, I think, tend to to 
think about when we think about creation, we think about physical things, earthly things, visible things, touchable things, tangible things, things that we can measure, numbers we can understand, because to us, that's creation. Trees and ocean and soil and humans and bears and fish and birds and sun and stars and moon and the earth and, and, and the, you know, like, electromagnetic field and we think of tangible physical measurable things when we think of creation however paul reveals that jesus created much more than just all that is visible he also created all that is invisible in verse 16 it says for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible now the word heaven there is a, a reference to, you know, heaven can be described in three ways. The word heaven is used to describe three different heavens in scripture. You've got heaven as in the sky. So sometimes in the Bible, the word heaven describes just the blue sky that you look at. They didn't have the science we have 2,000 or 5,000 or 6,000 years ago. So they just looked up and went, the heaven. And beyond that heaven is a second heaven. We call it outer space. And the third heaven is what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 12, 2 through 3, which is the spiritual realm. It's not a physical space like the sky or the universe. It is the heaven that we think of when we say the word heaven when we're talking about the Bible. Because Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 2 through 3, that he was caught up in the third heaven. And he says, the things that he heard, the things that I heard, cannot be spoken by men or understood by humans. Unfathomable, this other heaven. And that heaven that Paul was caught up in was created by Jesus. And every heaven in between created by Jesus. All of it. So not just the physical things we can see, but the invisible, the non-physical, the spiritual realm, the realm in which the demons play, the realm in which Satan slithers along to, to try to manipulate and destroy that realm and that Satan and those demons created by Jesus. They weren't created as demons. They weren't created as Satan. They were created as angels who rebelled, but they were created and the realm in which they exist was created by Jesus. It didn't exist. That spiritual realm did not exist when the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit lived eternally in their own love and joy together. They didn't need a space. They didn't need a house. There were no winters that they needed to stay warm in. There was no atmosphere around them that they needed to protect themselves from. There's no external realm or force or idea that they submitted into. God alone decided and determined that which surrounded him. And he needed nothing other than his own presence expressed to himself through his son or to his son and his son expressing that love back to him through the Holy Spirit who is the love of God. So the Father, Son, and Spirit existing eternally and then they decided we're going to create a heaven and an earth. We're going to create these people. We're going to create trees. We're going to create the oceans and, 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 then, and then we're also going to create this realm that is not visible or physical, but spiritual and invisible. And we're going to create angels. And we're going to dwell in that realm, that spiritual realm as well. And we're going to interact with these ministers that are angels. And when some of them rebel, they too will do their dirty work in the dark. Behind the physical 
behind what we can see to manipulate and destroy you. And all of that realm is created by Jesus. Included in the category of invisible is that spiritual realm. And we see that here in the middle of verse 16 when Paul writes, visible and invisible. So this word invisible is the last word before we get this next word, weather. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. So these, 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 these words... Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities are connected to the word invisible. I think when we read those, we might think to ourselves, oh, thrones, like kings, like David, or Nebuchadnezzar, or Joe Biden, or any Roman emperor. That's what thrones must mean. Or dominions, like the Roman Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Assyrian Empire. The American Empire, that must be what dominions is. Rulers like kings or presidents and authorities like government officials. Because we read Romans 13 and we see God established all these authorities. So we automatically, I think, jump to me to, to think that he's talking about physical, established nations and authorities here. But it has nothing to do with anything phys physical. It is all non-physical, invisible, spiritual realm. So these words, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authority, is a reference to the angelic powers. And we see this in scripture, and we also find it in ancient Jewish literature that tells us that this is a very common idea. So if you were a first century Jew reading Paul's letter here, and you saw the words thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, your brain would automatically know that he's talking about what everyone there knows about. There are four classes of angelic powers. That's what they believed. That's what they understood. And that was how they would have interpreted these words. And these last two, rulers and authorities are the highest uh, power or the highest ranking angelic powers. That's what he's talking about. This is a description of the invisible. Now to us, who rarely hear much about the relationship between Jesus and the angels, we might seem like this is kind of a point worth passing over. But in the first century world, Christ was often considered to either be an angel himself or that he was lower than the angels, that he was just like this prophet of God, or he was just some emanation of God, and, and then he submits to the angels. Some believe that he wasn't physical, he was just like this floating like cloud of, looked like a person. Some people thought he's only a person, he's not God at all, and all these different ideas in between. Either way, they thought, thought of him as less than the angels. And Paul then opposes these false teachings and verifies that Jesus not only ranks higher than the angels and not only ranks higher than the highest ranking angels, the rulers and authorities, but that he literally created them. That their existence was his idea and their reality was his doing. That they are a product of his creative mind. That he is superior and supreme with authority over them. That doesn't sound crazy to you because you probably already know that. Especially now that we know the gospel story, the way that we do. It's been embedded in our minds since we were children. That the angels worship Jesus. That the angels declare Jesus is born. They didn't declare, oh, this guy's born, but he's not as important as us angels. In fact, when angels are worshipped, 
accidentally by people in Scripture. They go, whoa, dude, no, don't worship me. I'm not Jesus. So what causes people to believe that Jesus was lower than the angels? I think it boils down to one fact. He's a man. He's a man. An encounter with an angel would be a supernatural experience. Jews knew the stories of the Old Testament where angels showed up and did miraculous things. And people reported their encounters with angels, and some of those encounters were probably genuine, some of them not. Either way, to encounter an angel was a supernatural experience, and that supernatural being, therefore, must be superior to us as humans. I mean, think about it. Like, if, if an angel just showed up here and started, like, commanding physical, the physical realm to submit to the spiritual realm and started performing all kinds of crazy miracles, we would be like, clearly, this being that is not human is supernatural. We are natural. Supernatural means natural, supersized, right? It's, it's bigger and better and greater, so it's natural for us natural beings to consider something that's supernatural as greater than us. And so the angels were considered to the first century world as gods almost. Maybe to genuine Christians, they weren't considered God, but they were right under God. And now you've got this man named Jesus and there's no way this guy who's just natural could be supernatural because he's just a dude. Even when Jesus performs miracles, people were not convinced that he's God. And those miracles were supernatural. But there were a lot of magicians doing a lot of weird things by the power of Satan, too. Satan can manipulate reality just as much as or as much as God allows him to, he can manipulate reality. But he's got power over the physical realm in a spiritual way. I mean, look at the story of Aaron and, 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 and Moses and when they go to uh, try to free God's people from Pharaoh and they throw the stick on the ground, it turns into a snake. And then Pharaoh's magicians did the same thing. And you're going, what, what, whoa, whoa, hold on a second. I remember reading as a kid like, wait a minute. D- did God do that? Or if he didn't, then who did? Satan? So, being supernatural doesn't necessarily mean being holy. But even evil people could perform what would look like as supernatural things. And some of them are tricks and a hoax. But either way, there's plenty of reason for some people to believe, I don't know if I believe this Jesus guy. He's doing miracles, but I've seen a lot of people do some weird things. And as Jesus' ministry goes on, he starts doing so many incredible miracles, especially when he starts casting out demons. No one's done that. That's a whole new world. And he starts declaring and, def- and, and, and making it very obvious that he is the Son of God. But even then, people still didn't believe it. So with this idea grew the significant heresy that Jesus was lower than the angels. And this is why the author of Hebrews spends all of, most of Hebrews chapter 1 and 2 explaining that Jesus is not only superior to the angels, but that he created the angels. In Hebrews 1.6 it says, Let all God's angels worship him, him is Jesus. He's talking about Christ. So the context there means, let all of God's angels worship Jesus. Of the angels, God the Father says, Jesus makes his angels winds, and Jesus makes his ministers a flame of fire. 
The key to pick up in that verse is that Jesus makes his angels whatever he wants to make his angels because they are his. And since, pe- since people worshiped angels, Paul's thrust here is that Jesus alone is the only one worthy of our worship, which becomes even clearer here as we get to the end of the verse. So at the end of verse 16, Paul writes, all things were created through him. It sounds a lot like the beginning of verse 16, right? By him, all things were created. And then at the end of verse 16, all things were created through him. Kind of sounds like the same point, but it's not. Paul uses the word through at the end of verse 16 instead of the word by at the beginning of verse 16. So what's the difference? The difference is that at the end of verse 16, Paul says all things were created through him and for him. Those are not separated ideas. It's not through him, meaning he made everything, or for him necessarily that everything was made for himself. That is true, which we will see in other texts too. But really what he's doing is he's saying that these two ideas, through him and for him, are connected. So he's creating a different idea than he, start, than he created at the beginning of verse 16. Paul's given us a different idea than he gave us at the beginning of verse 16. Beginning of verse 16 was everything's made by Jesus. End of verse 16, he's making a different point. And that point is this. The Greek word for is a preposition that is often translated as the word toward, toward, meaning all of creation was created through him and toward him. And this is what this means, that he is the beginning of all things and he is the end of all things. Just as all things come to being by his command, so all things will come to an end at his command. What it is expressing is this absolute, Jesus' absolute and total sovereign rule over all things. The destiny of all things, from the smallest molecule to the largest star, all things will culminate in his sovereign will and will end as he chooses them to end, will end when he chooses them to end. Your life will end when he chooses it to end. The world will end when he chooses it to end. Why? Who gives him that right? He gives himself that right. Why? Because it's his. He created it. This is so fundamental to so many doctrines. We cannot understand the total and absolute sovereignty of God if we do not get that he's the creator. We don't understand his will over your life is his will, not yours. That can't make sense to you unless you understand that you are 100% not your own, but you are his. Jesus, or Paul said that in 1 Corinthians, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Everything about your life is under the absolute, total, and sovereign control of Jesus Christ. Everything, from beginning to end, every breath, every thought, every decision, all things, that, that idea, I mean, how many Christians say that we sing songs about it, we say it all the time, when things are hard, go, oh, God's in control, but do we really believe that? We can't understand that, we can't grasp that, because I think a lot of the problem is this doctrine of creation. We would say, God is creator of all things, but I'm in control of my life. Those two things cannot make sense together. 
I'm not saying you don't have a will. I'm not saying you don't make choices. I'm not saying you don't express things in your own way. It's not my point. I'm not going to talk about the intricacies of God's sovereignty and your choices and those things. My point is, though, we say things like, God made everything, and then we say, and God's in control, but we don't really believe that God's in control. And we certainly don't act like God's in control. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm just expressing a reality. And so we aren't going to really understand the application in your daily life of living under and in submission to the authority of God and his word in his total and absolute sovereignty if we don't first really grasp that because he created all things, that makes all things you in total and absolute submission to his authority, his supremacy, and his superiority. You are his completely. He will do with you as he pleases and you have, and I dare say, no say in what he does with you. Because he could kill you now. Right now. If he wants. He could turn me into a frog right now if he wanted to. Just to prove a point. And hopefully turn me back. Because <laughs> I'm not done preaching. So... I think we just, the reality is we think of this as an elementary doctrine, but there is so much to this that we kind of pass over and we skip and miss so much here that has implications to doctrines further down the road that have real implications as to how we live our lives. So this is really important that we understand this and it's total and absolute sovereignty over all things. And this means that all things not only were created for him to be sovereign over, supreme over, and authoritative over, but it means that all things are created with a purpose. And that's a purpose that you willingly choose to express in whatever way God ordains for your life. The primary purpose of all things is that all things would con conclude and culminate in one particular reality the absolute and supreme glory of Jesus Christ. That's the end of all things. Why did he create you? Why did he create wood, trees, dung beetles, oceans, stars? Why? Why did he create everything? For his glory. Everything exists for his glory. And in the end, he will get that glory. All that exists was made by Jesus so that Jesus would be most glorified in the end. All of creation serves that one main purpose, to exalt the nature and person of Jesus Christ. That is God the Father's priority in existence, is to exalt his Son. Why? Because his Son, if we'll see in three verse, two verses, verse 19, for in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Why does the Father want to magnify and glorify the Son? Because the Son, in the Son, is the Father. In seeing the Son, you see the Father. The fullness of the Father dwells in the Son, doesn't just dwell in Him, but is pleased to dwell in Him. So when the Son gets glory, when the Son gets exalted, when the Son gets magnified, God the Father gets glory, exaltation, and He gets magnified. And that's why the Father's objective is to glorify the Son, and the Son's objective is to glorify the Father. And the Father wants to glorify the Son because the Father knows when the Son is glorified, God the Father is glorified. Well, that's crazy. Why would God demand glory? Doesn't that make him some sort of like megalomaniac, some, some praise, crazy, hungry psychopath who just, oh, I deserve all the glory. 
The only reason we think that way is because that would be unwise for us to think that way. We can't think that way. And if we think God would think that way, if we think God's being a megalomaniac for wanting all the glory, that means we don't understand God. It means we've taken God and minimized him to our human perspective. Because in our human perspective, it is totally inappropriate to think we deserve all the glory because we're not worthy of it. God knows all things. God sees all things. God created all things. All things serve his glory and his purpose. And if God knows all things, then he certainly knows the total and full value of his own worth. And in realizing and in knowing the total, full value of his own worth, he looks at himself and he goes, I'm the best. And it's not arrogant because he goes, the reason I'm the best is because I'm perfectly righteous and holy, which means I can't be arrogant but I can be confident in my perfection. And so, because I am the best, I am the best thing for you. And because I love you, the best thing for you is to give you me. So here is my son, Jesus. You're welcome. <laughs> like, I make it seem so like casual, but this is huge. I give you my son, Jesus. Why? To give you me because I am the greatest thing that exists. That's God the Father. That's his perspective on himself. And it's not pride. And it's not arrogance. It's not foolish. It's perfection. It's a perfect understanding of his own value and worth that he portrays to us and says, the best thing for you is to glorify me. In that, you will be most satisfied because if you glorify me, trust me, I will satisfy you. Because there's nothing on earth that's going to satisfy you like me. So have me, glorify me, I'm worth it, and I deserve it. And it's not arrogant for me to say so because it's true. And in doing so, you will be very happy. So magnify and exalt my son Jesus, whom is your Lord and Savior, who gave you this way to me. And as you exalt him, I'll be glorified in him and you'll be satisfied in him and we will all live forever, eternally, happily ever after. Life is a fairy tale, isn't it? Right? We get to live happily ever after because God understands his own value and worth and decides to share it with us. Our objective now is to spend the rest of our life glorifying him. That is the ultimate point here. That Jesus' nature as perfect God means everything on earth should magnify his glory. And that includes you and me. And that idea leads to the only rational conclusion. And that rational conclusion is this. Jesus should be worshipped. It was the only rational conclusion of the angels. It was the only rational conclusion of the wise men when he was born. It was the only rational conclusion that Herod thought of when he heard that the Son of God was born. He heard the Messiah, the Savior, was born. He goes, oh, uh, why don't you guys tell me where you find him so that I can come and worship him too? Did he mean it? No. He was lying. He wanted to kill baby Jesus. But what was the only way he knew that people would think he meant that he was excited about Jesus? I want to worship him too. What Herod revealed is what everyone knows. This son of God deserves worship. 
We are his creation. Our purpose of being created was not for us, but that we would be creatures who worship him. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, people worshiped him. And the Pharisees complained, don't let these people worship you. And Jesus said in Luke 19.40, I tell you, if these people were silent, the very stones would cry out. All of creation is meant for his worship. And if people don't do it, then the rest of creation will. So how much more then should we be worshiping him. Now in Romans 11.36, I'm going to wrap up with this. Romans 11.36, Paul writes that we, writes what could be considered, I would say, a summary of Colossians 1.16. And he says here, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Right, So for from him he made all things, and through him he sustains all things, and to him for his glory are all things. That's exactly what Paul's been teaching us in verse 16. Now remember I told you that the only rational conclusion from this idea that he is our creator and that we should worship him for being our creator, the only rational conclusion is that if he is our creator, we should worship him. I say this because Paul says it in the very next verse. Romans 12.1. This is where this idea of Jesus as creator becomes very practical, very relatable and understandable for your life, very tangible reality for you to live in. Romans 12.1. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The words spiritual worship in Greek mean rational service. So present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your rational service, meaning the only rational response to understanding verse, chapter 11, verse 36, the previous verse, that all things are from him and through him and to him, everything for his glory, everything forever for his glory. Amen. What's the only rational response? Worship. What's the only rational response? Living sacrifice. What comes to mind when you think of worship? Singing, praise, praying, reading your Bible, giving, going to church. Those are forms of worship, right? Yeah, they are. It's good. We do those things. That's great. But look at how Paul describes worship in chapter 12, verse Romans 12, 1. This is worship. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That is worship. Listen to this. Sacrifice is worship. Are you willing to sacrifice an hour of sleep to be at church? Are you willing to sacrifice some of your own free time to love your wife? Are you willing to sacrifice watching your favorite sport, to go hang out with people you love? Are you willing to sacrifice money to bless your children with the things they need? I think of some of these things we'd all say, yeah, too. But I think there's more to it than that. This sacrificial worship 
Okay, I'm not just talking about worship like, hey, show up and praise God, and you stand there, and it's like, this isn't a sacrifice at all. I get up, come to church, raise my hands, praise Jesus, say a couple prayers, sit through Pastor Mark's really long sermon, and that's the sacrifice right there. I have to listen to Mark for 45 minutes, right? So if you feel like that's sacrifice, it is to a certain extent. There's so much more here that Paul is talking about. This sacrificial worship is the only kind of worship that Paul says is holy and acceptable to God. And it is the only form of worship that is rational. Worship, specifically sacrificial worship, is the only rational response to the understanding that Jesus is creator and supreme and sovereign over everything, including you. It's the only, it's the only fitting response to this reality that Jesus rules your life, is that you would sacrifice everything for him. So what does sacrificial worship look like? This is the how. Jesus gives us plenty of examples in the Gospels. I'm going to give you two quick ones. Let's take giving, for example. When you give joyfully, that's worship. When you give non-joyfully, that's sin. I just established that up front. If you write a check to Grace Church and it's $10 trillion and you're like, here, that's sin. Oh, it's a trillion dollars. Sin. The only giving that pleases the Lord is a cheerful heart. Whether it's five cents or five trillion dollars. It's the heart that counts. That's all that matters. In Mark 12, 41 through 44, Jesus is watching people give their money and there's this group of religious elite who have a ton of money because they get money from people who follow them around and worship them barely. And they use all this money and they go to the, the money givers and they pour all this money out into people like, oh, look how rich I am. And they just like trying to show off to everybody. And what Jesus notices is that there's this poor widow and she gives two copper coins. She is broke. And those two coins is all that she had. And Jesus uses this to teach his disciples that though the others gave more, the poor widow was the only one who was truly worshiping God because her giving was sacrificial. Now I'm not telling you that the only worship and giving that's genuine is if you give all of your money to the church. Okay? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, where's your heart and your giving? And I, it's not just giving, it's everything. Where's your heart and your singing? And your worship and praise? Where's your heart right now when you're listening to me preach? You're going, oh gosh, he's serious, he's going off. Are you almost done? No, I'm not. If I could be like that, no, I'm going to keep going. <laughs> Just kidding. Yes, I'm almost done. Jeez, all right, so. <laughs> the point is that, like, it's our heart that determines how sacrificial our worship is. Listen, if I've got, let's just say i got $5,000 in the bank. I'm not making a rule here, okay? So let's just get off the rule train because I know we love rules. And Pastor Mark said if I give 10%, the Bible doesn't tell you to give 10%. Nowhere. Nowhere does it tell you to give 10%. There's no rule for giving in the New Testament. You have no rules for giving. I'm sorry, you have one rule for giving. Joy. That's it. If 
you have $5,000 in the bank and you have $4,000 of expenses at home and you've got $1,000 left and you're like, I need like $200 to get this thing for my family that's beyond our regular expenses and I got, you know, whatever, and I'm, I'm going to give 800 bucks. And that's, that feels like a sacrifice for you because you'd like to save a little and work, you know, and, that be, and, you, and you feel like this is a big deal to me to give that much. And you want to do it because you love Jesus and you love his church and you want to give faithful and you, you write that check and you're like, God, I maybe shouldn't give this much, but I really feel like you're telling me to give this much and, and I'm going to make this sacrifice because I feel like your spirit is telling me I ought to. I'm going to do it not because the church needs me or my money, not because you need me or my money, not because money means anything, but because you want me to. And it feels like a sacrifice I'm ready to make. That's very different than, I've got $5,000, Pastor Mark told me to give give sacrificially, just like the lady with the two coins. It was all she had. I guess I have to give $5,000 and not eat for a month. That's not at all what Jesus is teaching. I can't tell you what sacrificial giving is for you, and I don't really care what the number is. That's irrelevant. This is one of the reasons I don't really pay attention to who gives. I mean, in fact, I don't even know who gives what or whatever. And the reason we do that, one of the reasons is just for accountability. It keeps my mind off of money when I relate to you. I don't want to know how much you give. I don't want to be like, oh, the guy who gives a lot hasn't been at church. I better go get him. But the guy who isn't giving, ah, uh, whatever. I don't want to ever be tempted with that kind of mentality. Not only that, but I don't want to know, I don't want to look at someone who says, this person gives 100, this person gives 5,000, and think, well, the person gives 100. <laughs> They're not very big givers compared to this spiritual giant. I know plenty of people, not in this church, other people, who give a ton of money and whose lives I do not believe reflect joy in Jesus Christ. That number means nothing. I don't care what number you put in that check. God doesn't care what number you put in that check. What he cares about is that that number is a reflection of your sacrificial worship. I'm not even telling you to give. I'm not telling you to give more. I'm not telling you to give more. That's weird for a pastor to stand at a pulpit where the Bible tells you to give and say, don't give more. I don't, this, I want you to give joyfully. And if your heart turns into sacrificial worship, you will give more. That's the reality. And I don't care what the number is, as long as your heart is filled with joy in God and you give joyfully, okay? So enough about money and giving. It's just an example of sacrificial worship. I'll give you one more example and then we'll be done. Half, it, it, another example of sacrificial worship is in Matthew 5.30, where Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, <laughs> listen to this command, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you, it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now I want to tell you, Jesus doesn't really mean cut off your hand. But doesn't he though? I mean like, if it's causing you to sin, and you might think to yourself, yeah, but like my, I sin with my hands every day kind of, like I'm always sinning, so that I should really just kind of have like no hands, no feet, no tongue, no eyes, because I sin with all of it. But Jesus is making a very dramatic statement about the severity, I'm sorry, the severe nature of our lack of sacrificial worship. 
Anything that stands in your way of worshiping him is sin. And that thing needs to be cut off in your life. That means, now listen to me, that means that some of us need to take our phones and throw them in the St. Croix River. And I'm not kidding. I'm not being dramatic. Take that thing, walk onto the bridge on 243, and chuck it as your act of worship to Jesus. Because it's causing you to sin and you can't control it. But my whole life's on that phone. No, it's not. Your life is in heaven. Unless you'd prefer to keep your phone. Hard truth, but it really reveals how non-sacrificially we worship Jesus. I worship him on Sunday mornings and the few church occasions that I show up to and a couple times throughout the week, maybe if I read my Bible or listen to some worship music in the car or something like that, pray occasionally. The rest of my life is not worship, let alone sacrificial. I could give many more examples of sacrificial worship, but I'd prefer the Holy Spirit to make those applications in your life. You know. You know where worship needs to take a step of faith and trust in God and make that sacrifice. Make, make that sacrifice that is holding you back from a fruitful and gloriously joyful life in worship to Jesus. You know where it is. Are you willing to take that step? Let's pray. Jesus, we worship you. We want to, at least. We try to. We attempt to. And a lot of times we really do. And I don't think we should feel guilty at all if our life is not filled with sacrificial worship because what we learned earlier was you are full of mercy, full of mercy and grace. And there's nothing you want more than to give us opportunities to sacrificially worship you. What that looks like will be different in each of our lives. How that is enacted would be different circumstances, different measures of ex extreme. And, and, and I, all, I, all I ask God is that you would push us. Push us to take that step that's really hard to take. That one thing maybe that we're holding back, that we're just kind of saying, that's a sacrifice I'm not willing to make. When deep down you know, you know, God, that that is the one thing keeping us back from a life of real joy, of real love, of real satisfaction in you, of real growth, real renewal, genuine revival, life-changing, life-altering, world-changing, world-transforming, 
change in our lives, transformation in our lives. That's, that's what we want. And we're just holding on to something else other than you right now. So make us let go and give up and sacrifice whatever it is that is keeping us from being like Christ. I pray you would cause that here in this room right now, that you would work in souls and in minds and in hearts that are still resisting you as we pray together, still resisting you now, still, though they are being urged to give it up, are still resisting you. Push back. May your spirit overcome our hard hearts. Make them soft and supple and ready for change. Only you can do it. We know it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.